Welcome to the Rick Reed Sermon Podcast. Rick serves as the president of Heritage College and Seminary, where he has the joy of preaching God's Word and training the next generation of preachers. The sermons on this podcast are taken from Dr. Reed's preaching ministry in churches, conferences, and at chapel services at Heritage. a series here on Tuesday chapels entitled Thinking Biblically. And uh, the goal of the series is to help us learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. To love the Lord, the, the Lord our God with our minds. I mentioned last week that uh, one of my profs used to say, nothing is as easy to do as thinking. And nothing is as hard to do as thinking well. So we're trying to think well, think biblically about some important themes and topics and subjects. Today, we're going to look at one that is increasingly hard to think well about in our day and age. It's a topic that's very, very personal to you and to me. Today, I want to talk to you about thinking about yourself, about your identity, As I said, it's a very personal topic, right? How do you see yourself? How do you think about yourself in relationship to other people, in relationship to the wider culture, the wider world? How do you you see yourself? It's very personal. It's also somewhat confusing. It's not just deeply personal. It's somewhat confusing because in our day and age, you are offered a wide menu of choices in terms of how you can frame your own identity. You can think about yourselves in any number of categories and make that how you present yourself to the world. You can frame your identity in terms of your race, in terms of your nationality, in terms of your gender, in terms of your sexuality. You can frame it in terms of your religion. You can frame it in terms of your food choices. You can frame it in terms of your political viewpoints. Like there's a host of ways that you are being told, listen, you can think about yourself, and this is like how you should see yourself. So it's somewhat confusing to figure out, well, how am I supposed to put all this stuff together? So it's personal, it's confusing, but here's the third thing. It's very timely, especially for those of you in the college, especially those of you who are moving in from young adulthood into kind of an older adulthood. Because when you're in your stage, I'm speaking to college students here, when you're in your stage in life, one of the primary tasks that you have is to figure out who you are. You kind of know who you were, like the family you came from, the church you came from. But now that you are somewhat on your own, moving into adulthood, how will you think about yourself? Who will you be to other people? Like this is an important time. It's a formative time. Now, the Bible would agree that it's very, very important for you to frame your identity in the right way. The Bible would say this is an important topic. It would say to you that you need to learn to see yourself in the right way. And the Bible would say that you will only see yourself in the right way if you come to understand how God sees you. Like the starting point is not even how you see yourself. The Bible would say, listen, before you can figure that out, you need to know how God sees you. In fact, until you know how God sees you, you will not accurately see yourself. But if you know how God sees you and you embrace that, it will accelerate your life in Christ. It will accelerate your discipleship. 
It will make a huge difference in how you live, how you relate to other people. So this morning, I want us to do some thinking about identity, about your identity, about my identity. I want to take you to a passage that I think is one of the seminal passages in the Bible that helps us frame how we are to see ourselves. And I'm asking you today to take this very personally, to listen and say, this is not just for everyone else. Like, this is for me. I've got to figure this out. I want to take you to a passage that if you begin to let this truth seep into your thinking, it will change your living because how you view things ultimately determines how you do things. And the passage that I'm referencing that we're going to look at today is found in the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. So would you join me there? Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. I want to talk to you about thinking biblically about yourself, thinking biblically about your identity. Let me pray for us. I know we've prayed, we've sung our prayers, we've voiced our prayers, but let me pray for this time, okay? Father, now as we open your words, we always come and say, if you don't open our eyes, they're just going to be words on a page, just concepts that are being floated out, but they won't grab us, they won't grip us, they won't transform us. But we know your word is alive and powerful. Sometimes we just feel a bit dull and distracted. So today I'm asking that you would cut through the clutter of all the things that are pressing in on us and let us hear your voice. Jesus, speak to us by your spirit through your word in a way that we know it's you, in a way that you change us to be more like you. And I pray this in your mighty name. Amen. So Romans chapter 6 verse 11 says this. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you also must consider yourself, must think about yourself as someone who's dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. A couple of things I want to show you right off the bat about that one verse. Did you notice it's a command? You also must consider. He doesn't say you might consider yourself. He says, no, you must do this. He doesn't just say you could see yourself this way. He says, no, you should see yourself this way. It's a command. In fact, here's something that's somewhat surprising. This is the very first command in the entire book of Romans. Like we're in chapter six and there's not been one imperative. There's not been one command. We've gone 148 verses. And now we come to verse 11, and it's the first command in the book of Romans. And the first command relates to how you think about yourself, right? That's the very first thing he tells you. You must consider, you must think, you must add it up. You must reckon this. You must put your mind to this. You must think about how God wants you to think about yourself. You must consider yourself. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpackage this one verse in its context and show you that. This one verse, more than most verses in the Bible, if you let this hit you, and if God's Spirit makes it alive in your thinking, it will change you. It will change you. So let me unpackage it for you in terms of how you and I are to think about ourselves. I'm going to do it in a couple steps, but here's the first one. I think that this verse is telling us pretty clearly right off the top, and it's telling you that you have to think about yourself. Like when you think about yourself... You have to think about yourself as dead to sin in Christ Jesus, right? That's what it says. 
You must consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you got to think about yourself as dead to sin in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul's really summarizing what he's already said in the previous verses. So let me walk you through verses 1 through 7. This is where he lays the groundwork for what he says in verse 11. Here's where he talks about being dead to sin. Now, follow it. Notice how many times he talks about dying to sin, dead to sin. Look at it with me. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who, here it is, died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized, here it is, into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. He said all of that, that's why when he gets to verse 11, he says, so this is how you must think about yourself, somebody who is dead to sin in Christ Jesus. Now, you may hear all that and go, okay, well, I kind of get it. But it seems a little bit theoretical. It seems a little bit kind of up and lofty. Like, I have some questions. Like, when, so when did I die to sin? I mean, that sounds wonderful, but when did that actually happen? Well, he tells you there in verse 6. Did you see when you died to sin? Verse 6. We know that our old self, that's who you were before you knew Jesus, who you were in Adam, as it were. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might. So he's saying, you know, when you died to sin, you died to sin when Jesus did. In some way, God is saying that on Jesus' cross, Jesus was there and you were there. In some ways, his cross was your cross. That's what he's saying. We were, verse six, right? Our old self was crucified with him. You see, the cross of Christ was not only a historical event, which it was. It's also, God says, a personal event. Like you were there. You say, well, I wasn't even born yet. I know, but God is actually going to say, I'm crediting to you that you were there and you died. You died with Christ. You died when he died. You say, well, okay. So God is saying that he's counting Jesus' death as my death. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Well, verse 6 tells you, if you keep going, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that, so that, here's the reason why it matters, so that the body of sin, the body, your body, which does sin, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There it is. The reason this matters is because God says you died on the cross with Jesus, and that means you are no longer, look at verse 6, you are no longer enslaved to sin. You're no longer enslaved to sin. Now, here's something that is, you got to wrap your head around to get this. The Bible makes a, a strong case that every single person, everyone in this room, every person who's ever lived, 
when they were born, they were born a slave. They may not have thought it. They may have thought they were the freest person on earth. But the Bible says, no, actually, every single person who's ever lived was born a slave. Paul makes that case in the early chapters of Romans, right? Chapter one, he says, if you were a wild living pagan, you were a slave to sin. And we all go, yeah, those guys are slaves to sin. But then he goes to chapter two and he goes, if you're a moralistic, good, upright person, you're a slave to sin. You go, whoa, that's a little harder to hear. And then he comes to chapter three and he says, if you're a God-fearing Jew, like one of God's people, you're a slave to sin. In fact, in chapter three, verse nine, listen to what he says here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So when you were born, you were under sin. You were under the control of sin. You could not not sin. Okay? I mean, that's just like you were a slave. Sin had your number. Sin owned you. You may not have thought in those terms. But the Bible says, well, that's actually what was true of you. So you were born into slavery, into sin. And that's why it's a big deal when it says you died with Jesus, because look at verse seven, for the one who has died, here it is, has been set free from sin. Like the only way you get out of being a slave to sin is you got to die. And he says, and the one who's died has been set free from sin. You see the phrase there in verse seven has been set free from sin in the Greek text that this is translated from, the word that's translated set free is the word that's normally translated justified. Like the one who has died has been justified from sin. I think what he's saying is this, when you died with Jesus, that's the, when you put your faith in Christ, okay, you might've been seven years old. You might've been 17 years old. But when you came to that moment where you knew that you had stuff in your life that was a barrier between you and God, and you had shame in your life, and you, were, and you were stuck, and you looked up, and you said, Jesus is my only hope. And you asked him for forgiveness, and you invited him to be Lord and Savior of your life. At that moment, you died and were justified. God pardoned you, right? He declared you righteous. But he also declared you free. That's what verse 7 is saying. The one who has died has been justified, set free from sin. So here's what you got to know. Why is it important that you are seen dying with Jesus? Because that's how you got set free from sin. You're no longer a slave to sin. Now, let me, let me illustrate it this way. A number of years ago, my family went down to Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, there is in Cincinnati, on the banks of the Ohio River, there's a museum called the Underground Railroad Museum. It's really a fascinating place. And if you know anything about the history of the United States in the area of slavery, you know that this Underground Railroad was the pathway to freedom for some of the African-American slaves. And why it's located right there on the banks of the Ohio River is because on the other side of the river is the state of Kentucky. Kentucky was a slave state. But Ohio, on the other side of the river, was a free state. So slaves would risk, literally risk their lives. They would would fly through the night. There were people that would help them. Like their safe houses, they had ways to kind of know where you could go. And then at some point, they would go across that river. And if they could get to Ohio, they were headed to freedom. And many of them came all the way up to Canada. The Underground Railroad goes all the way up. If you go down to the Welland Canal in that area, you can see 
history about Canada inviting people. Because when they got to Canada, they were free. They were safe. Now, get this. Slavery was so oppressive and so dehumanizing that many of these people would rather die than stay a slave. Like, they risked their life. Like, I may, I may die trying to get my freedom, but I'd rather die than be a slave. In fact, there was a song, a spiritual song, a Negro spiritual song that was played over and over in this museum. It's called Freedom. Go, maybe you've heard it. It goes something like this. It goes, Freedom. Oh, freedom, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That's what they would sing. Before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. They knew if I, if I die and go home to be with Jesus, I'll be free. And I'm going to risk getting freedom. I'll risk my life. Now, think about that in terms of slavery to sin. Many of you are, are still pretty young in life. But many of us here in this room have known what it's like to feel enslaved to a sin that dehumanizes us and oppresses us and controls our lives. A lot of us here, we've lived that. And sometimes we get so tired of being enslaved to some sin that we almost cry out, God, I'd, I'd rather die than keep living as a slave to this sin. I'd rather die than be a slave to my temper that just flies off and wounds people. I don't know why I do that. I'm sick of that. Or someone says, I'm, I'd rather die than keep being enslaved to a tongue that says words that bite and hurt and, and cause fractures between people that I love. I'd rather die than keep living in slavery to this. Or, or I would rather die, Lord, than keep living under this sexual shadow. It shadows me everywhere I go. It pulls me into the dark side again and again and again. And I get so tired of it. Sometimes I say, Lord, I'd rather die than keep doing this. Or I would rather die than continue to live with this sense of crushing worthlessness, that I don't matter. Sometimes that gets so deep and I think these destructive thoughts and I would rather die than live the rest of my life like, like this. And the Bible is coming along and saying, listen, I got some good news for you. If you feel that way, you did die. You did. It already happened. You died when Jesus died. And because you died with Jesus, you are free. And you say to me, then how come I don't feel free? Like, if I'm supposed to be so free, then how come that sin that you talked about still shadows me, it still stalks me, and it still pins me again and again? Why do I feel so alive to some sins in my life if I'm free? Is this like true? Is this just some kind of spiritual jargon that doesn't really make its way down to how we live? Like, I don't feel free from sin. Well, I would say to you that you have to remember two things about sin. Sin has two sides. Sin has what you could call a seductive side. And sin has what you could call a slavery side. It has both sides. You know this. Think about it with me. You'll figure it out. On the seductive side, sin, sin draws us, right? It, like, hey, come this way. 
But on the slavery side, it destroys us. Like we come and then it says, now I got you. And it makes us pay. On the seductive side, sin attracts us. But on the slavery side, it addicts us. On the seductive side, it tempts us. But on the slavery side, it traps us. Sin is that way. It's bait and switch. It's bait and catch. Now, let me ask you a question. Which of those two sides have you died to? We'd say, I haven't died to the seductive side. I still feel the pull of sin. You're right. You do. You haven't died to that side. Bible says it's very much alive. You can be tempted, but you have died. Catch this, brothers and sisters. If you're in Christ, you died to the slavery side. Like it no longer has the power to enslave you. It can still try to. It can still tempt you, but it cannot anymore trap you. That side is done because you died. That's what the Bible is saying. You died, verse 6, so that you would no longer be enslaved to sin. So let's go back to our story of the Underground Railroad. Let's picture a slave who lived in Georgia and made his way with his wife and young child They made their way up to the Ohio River. They risked everything. They got across the river. They got part of the Underground Railroad, and they came all the way to Canada. And they were living down by the Welland Canal. And they're in freedom. And one day, this man is out walking in the town, and he sees, much to his horror, his old slave master, who's come all the way from Georgia, and he's looking for him. And the slave master sees him. And as soon as he sees, that's my slave. He comes running over and says to them, get in the wagon. We are going home. Now, here's my question. How much authority does the slave master have over that man who had been a slave? How much authority does he have? There's two answers to that question. On what, the deep answer is this. He has none. That guy's in freedom. He came to Canada. He now lives in a free place. He has been set free. But there's another answer to that question that is equally true. You know how much authority that slave master has over that slave? As much as he gives him. Right? Because if he says, he, you know, just kind of out of force of habit, he's told me to get in the wagon. I know that guy's scared. I'm going to get in the wagon. And if he gets back in, it's like he's going back into slavery but he doesn't have to. He's been set free. So sin's going to come to you and it's going to say, get in the wagon. You know how this is going down. You're going to do it again. Sin has as much authority over you as you give it. But the Bible is saying you don't have to give it any authority because you have been set free. And you got to think of yourself that way. See, some of you don't think of yourself that way. You think of yourself as hopelessly stuck. And the Bible is saying, wait, 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 wait. You're thinking of yourself in the old way. You used to be hopelessly stuck, but now in Christ, you are not. Sin can tempt you, but it doesn't have to trap you. And you got to start changing the way you see yourself. So first thing, think of yourself as dead to sin in Christ Jesus. But we're not done. There's a second thing in our verse, verse 11. This needs to frame the way you think about yourself, your identity. Secondly, think of yourself as alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think of yourself as alive to God, not just dead to sin, but now alive to God in Christ Jesus. Did you see that in verse 11? It comes right out. So you must also 
consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul has already explained that in verses 8, 9, and 10. Look back at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's saying this, look, if you're linked to Jesus, and you are if you've trusted him, then not only his death is it your death, but his resurrection in God's eyes is your resurrection. You've now got new life. You've started a new life. You've, you're alive to God. John Stott, who is a wonderful theologian who's now in glory, put it in a way that made sense to me. He said this, what's happened to you in Christ dead to sin, alive to God, is so dramatic that you need to think of your story as written in two volumes. It's not just one story anymore. It's like you got to have it in two volumes. He said in volume one, volume one of your story, it begins the day you were born, your birthday. You know what your birthday is. So your volume begin on that day, okay? And it tells the story of the day you were born. And there were some, if you read volume one of your story, There's some happy things and there's some hard things that happen to you. But there's a sad motif that runs throughout volume one, and it's this. You were a slave to sin. That's that's, that's part of your story. That's who you were. But Stott says this. What the Bible is teaching is that when you come to Christ, it is so dramatic that if they're going to write your story, they're going to have to start a new volume. Volume two, who you are in Christ, alive to God. And volume two begins the day you were born. Well, I should say the day you were born again. And in volume two, you start out as a new person in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. New things have come. Volume two, guess what happens to your story in volume two? You got some happy things and you have some hard things. Just like in, in volume one, you have happy things, you have hard things. But in volume two, there's a significant difference. And that is simply this. You're free. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Oh, you still sin. You still get sucked in and you go back sometimes. But volume two, like there's freedom here. In other words, the Bible is saying that is true of you. And it is so radically true that you've got to learn to think of yourself that way. Now, as I've been preparing for this, I was up in the middle of the night last night thinking about this. Because my heart is this. I'm afraid that I'm going to spout all this stuff and you're going to go, okay, yep, this is good theological truth. And you're going to close it off in some little file folder in your head and walk away. And it's not going to change you. When the Bible is saying this should actually explode inside of you and change the way you think, change the way you live. And I was praying, Lord, how can I, with my feeble words, how can I let your word be unleashed? How can they see it? How can they feel it? So that it moves them. How can you do this for me? So it moves me. It changes me. And I was thinking about the story that really helped me understand the two volumes. It's the story of a little boy named Douglas Rice. Douglas Rice was born about 80 years ago in the 1940s. Douglas Rice never knew his father, never met him once. His mother was sporadically in and out of his life, but it was very unstable. 
And so at a very young age, he was put in an orphanage, Mother Kuehler's Home for Orphan Boys in Philadelphia. And there he lived as a little boy. He felt unloved. He felt unwanted. He felt unnoticed. He acted out terribly. Because in a home like Mother Kuehler's, the only way, some kids just blend into the, the scenery. They just try to hide and not be seen because they just don't want any more pain. And other kids come off the wall and say, notice me, notice me. Somebody notice me. Douglas Rice was that kid. He came off the wall and he created turmoil, even as a little guy. And he lived in Mother Kuehler's home till he was four years old when he died. They buried him in a quiet ceremony in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia, witnessed by a very, very few people. I know this story because Douglas Rice told me about it. He told me about his funeral. You say, well, wait a second. How can that happen? Well, let me tell you what happened. When Douglas Rice was four years old, a couple named Bill and Mildred Lawrence came to Mother Kuehler's home and they took Douglas Rice to their home. And they let him live there and stay there and get used to them. And they began to show him that they were safe and that they loved him and that he mattered to them. And after a period of time, they took Douglas Rice downtown to the courthouse in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they stood before a judge. And they said, we would like to adopt Douglas to be our son. And the judge looked at little Douglas and said, do you want to go live with these people? And he said, I do. And on that day, Douglas Rice died. They buried him in the form of his birth certificate that said Douglas Rice, putting it in a folder and putting it in a file cabinet somewhere in the bowels of City Hall of, of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And on that day, Douglas Rice legally died. And now little Billy Lawrence walked out of that courthouse with Bill and Mildred Lawrence. And he went to live with them. And now he was a kid who actually had parents and he had, he had a future and he had people who loved him. He didn't have to say, notice me, notice me, because he had people that said, we do notice you. We see you, Bill. But Bill said this, and this was the profound part of the story for me. He said, for many, many years, he still lived like he was Douglas Rice. Like his headspace still said, I'm Douglas Rice. I'm that kid that's unloved. I'm that kid that's unnoticed. He said, for many years, I tried to come off and try to say, notice me, notice me. Because that was so stamped into him. And he said, only over time did I begin to see, I'm not Douglas Rice anymore. I'm Bill Lawrence. I have parents who chose me, who adopted me, who loved me. I don't have to live like Douglas Rice because I'm not Douglas Rice anymore. I'm Bill Lawrence. And when he began to see his new identity, it began to change how he lived. A confidence began to grow in him. He began to think, maybe my life can amount to something. When I knew Bill Lawrence, he was a professor of preaching and theology at Dallas Seminary, where I attended. God had raised him up. He's gone around the world helping people figure out their identity because he understands what it means to be one volume slave, one volume free. He gets that. And one of the lines that Bill Lawrence would say to us all the time in class was this, summarizing Romans 6. He put it this way. You can't live like you used to live because you're not who you used to be. 
You're not Douglas Rice anymore. You're Bill Lawrence. You don't have to live like the person who was a slave because you're free. You've come home. You've been set free in Christ. You can't live like you used to live. You're not who you used to be. And only when you begin to think of yourself in the right way, will you begin to live in the right way. Like, this is not theoretical stuff, my brothers and sisters. This is not just some little truth you tuck away and go, well, that's kind of interesting. No, this is stuff that's meant to change you and and accelerate your discipleship in huge ways. So how do you think about yourself? You think about yourself as dead to sin in Christ Jesus and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let me wrap it up with this. Did you notice that both those phrases ended in the same phrase, in Christ Jesus? So let me boil it down and drive it home with one last thought. When you think about yourself at the most fundamental level, this is how you should think of yourself. You should think about yourself as in union with Christ Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. Did you notice the last little lines in verse 11? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That little phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus, that's Paul's shorthand. It's his favorite shorthand for the idea of in union with Christ, united with Christ. So whenever you read Paul, and he says it all the time, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, he's saying he means in union with Christ, united to Christ, your life linked to Christ. And what he's saying here is something that the Bible goes into great depths to to try to drive home to us, and that's simply this. Your primary identity should be this. I am someone who's in Christ. That's who I am. Now, I have secondary identities. I'm a professor. I'm a student. I'm Filipino. I'm, you know, whatever. I'm a pianist. I'm an athlete. You got all these secondary identities. I get that. But the Bible is saying your primary identity, like what you think most deeply about yourself is this. I am a person in Christ Jesus. I am in union with Christ. Because if you get that, it will change everything in your life. See, the Bible goes on to say that in Christ Jesus, a host, every spiritual blessing comes to you in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ, when you've come to trust in Christ, when you've given your life to Christ, when you've believed on Christ, you've received his forgiveness, in that, in that relationship, every good thing comes to you. If you want to get it, I'm packaging. Paul really digs into this in Ephesians, right? He tells you all these things that are true of you in Christ. In fact, I, I drew a little diagram here that if you put, uh, if you put the slide up, Micah, that you'll see it, the center, the bullseye is in Christ Jesus. And there's, there's a constellation of truth that all flows out of in Christ. Like in Ephesians, he says, in Christ, you are chosen of God. Ephesians 1 verse 3. In Christ, or verse 4, in Christ, you are adopted into God's family. Ephesians 1 5. In Christ, you are forgiven. Ephesians 1 7. In Christ, you have an inheritance. Ephesians 1 11. In Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 14. In Christ, you have a calling on your life. You have a purpose for your life, Ephesians 1.18. In Christ, you have a new family, Jews and Gentiles, that are a part of his inheritance, Ephesians 1.19. In Christ, you have power to live like you never could live before, Ephesians 1.20. It goes on and on and on. And it also says in Ephesians 1.10, in Christ, get this, you are on a winning team. 
You are linked to the one who's going to win the final story. We know how the story ends. Jesus wins. And in Christ, you get to win too. I was reading how uh, they've done some studies of university students who go to big universities, especially in the U.S., where they have football teams. And what they found was this. On weeks when the football team at the, say, you know, say it's at Old Miss or say it's at, uh, you know, Alabama or one of these big football powers, on, on weeks when the team wins, they've, they've done studies and found students tend to wear their swag more, their university swag, right? Like the football team won, so like it's Monday, I'm putting on my jersey. And they walk around and they say things like this, we won. Now, wait a second. They weren't on the football field. They were, maybe they watched it on TV. Maybe they were in the stands. They say, we won. They also found that when the team loses, people wear their swag less, and they say, they lost. In other words, we all like to be associated with the winner. And we identify with the winner. Get this. If you know Jesus, you get to say all the time, we win. Like, I didn't do much. I just believed in him, but he wins and I'm linked to him. So we win and you celebrate that and it becomes your identity. You start feeling like, wow, my life is actually going somewhere because I'm linked to his life. Back in 2010, my wife and I flew to Vancouver and we went to uh, the Olympics, uh, the, the Winter Olympics in Vancouver in 2010. Okay. In fact, I got major husband points because I took my wife to figure skating on Valentine's night. Like, like that's off the charts. <laughs> off, that's like off the charts romantic. Yeah, I mean, you know, probably wouldn't have been the one event that I would have chosen, but I knew she would love it. And it was actually pretty amazing. They're incredible athletes, both pairs figure skating. Sometimes ask Linda on how she sees that as an analogy of marriage. It's kind of a cool analogy. But anyway, we saw that. But 2010 Olympics is probably known in Canada most, most gloriously for what happened in the men's ice hockey final. Right? That's the game that Sidney Crosby scored the goal. Who set him up for it? Jerome and Galia, right? So I bought my swag and I was wearing it out there. Get this, I was born an American, and I'm rooting for the Canadians, so you never know. Because <laughs> we're dual citizens, and it was a bit of a divided loyalty right there. I'm thinking, well, well whoever wins, I win tonight, all right? Uh, so, so Crosby scores the goal, and guess what sales did in, in Team Canada jerseys? They went up, or did they go down? What do you think? They went up. Why do people in Canada strut their... Their jerseys after, the, the, after Crosby and the boys win. It's because they're going around saying, hey, we won. Wait a second, you don't even play hockey. I know, but we won. <laughs> like, I'm in Canada. I'm Canadian. They're my team. They win, I win. It's all good, right? Now, here's the point. At a much more profound and serious level, you are in Christ. Like, you're in Canada. It's good. Good thing to be in Canada. But it's nothing compared to being in Christ. It's good when Canada wins. We celebrate that. That's nothing compared to when Jesus wins. And get this. If you're in Christ, you get to go around saying, we win. Now, I didn't do anything. He did it all. But I'm in union with him. 
And what happens to him, God says, is seen as happening to me. He died to sin. Guess what? I died to sin. He, ra- he was raised to new life. Guess what? I get new life. He wins all the time, and I'm linked to him. And if you will start to allow that to be the way you frame your identity, bigger than anything else, bigger than any tribal loyalty you could come up with, bigger than any niche identity you could come up with, when you see yourself as in union with Christ, it will start changing the way you live. You see, you don't have to live like you used to live because you're not who you used to be. You are in Christ, and that makes all the difference in the world. So how do you see yourself? The Bible says you start here. You see yourself in union with Christ, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we get to be part of Team Jesus. None of us deserve to be in this team. And it's only by grace that you offered it to us and you offer it to all to all who know their need, to all who trust in Christ, to all who give their life, their identity, their soul, their body, their mind to Jesus. We get all that he is. And I'm so thankful for that. And I'm so thankful we get to be part of someone who is the Lord of history, the one who will rule all things, who will bring in a kingdom that will never end. And we get to be part of that. And we get to invite other people to be part of that. But today, my prayer, Lord, is that you will help us to think rightly about who we are and that we will give up our lesser identities, our secondary identities, and we would never make them primary. But that for us, who we are is always seen in light of who Jesus is. And I pray this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless. For more information on Heritage College and Seminary, visit the school's website at discoverheritage.ca. To stay connected with the Reeds, visit their website at rickandlindareed.com.